couple of observations as we begin this evening. First, I walked off without my jacket, so I apologize for that. I hope it's okay to teach jacketless. And second, this is a series of lessons. This first lesson is designed to be an introductory lesson to lay the groundwork for the things we're going to say the next two nights. And so, for those of you who may not be able to be here the next two nights, hopefully you can get a hold of the material. I assume it will be available in some fashion, and uh, you can proceed with your study. And that's what this is, folks. This is a study. And hopefully you've brought your brain tonight, and you're alert. If you start getting sleepy on me, I'm going to make you stand up, because I need your attention for this series. It's a topic I love to discuss, because it is a topic that is vital to our age, and it is one in which I consider it a great privilege that can bring honor and glory to the God we serve. I'm firmly convicted there is a God for lots of reasons. I want to start with you this evening, since we're doing this series in a church building, with passages of Scripture. But I will tell you, if we were doing this on a college campus, which is really my preference, I don't use the Scriptures at all. Because I'm convinced there is a grand testimony of God independent of Scripture. So we're titling this lesson this evening, Origins, Who Needs Faith? It was the title of a series I did on the campus of the University of South Florida about two years ago in a large teaching auditorium where they teach science. I like to do it in that kind of a setting. We had about 200 people there for that series, many of them not believers. And to me, that's the ideal place to deal with a series such as this. But it's all right here as well, because what it does for us, those of us who are already believers, it seems to me it helps us strengthen what we are convinced is so. And if you're here this evening and you're not a believer or you've had doubts about that, I hope you're honest with yourself, and I hope that you will at least be willing to open to the discussion this evening, and I appreciate your presence so much. And I will, res I will respect you, and I want you to respect me as we discuss with one another. I think it is critically important, whatever position you take about these things, to be respectful of the other person's view. And one of the things I try to do in this series is to make you think like the other person thinks. That is a valuable exercise, and I hope you will join me in that as we proceed. So. Let's take a look first at a couple of scriptures. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words... To the end of the world. One of several passages in Scripture that declares there is a testimony about God in the natural world. That's what this series is about. It's the testimony of God in the natural world. For those of you in this audience, which I suspect is most of us, who believe this is the Word of God, 
it is sufficient for many folks that this word says God created, and that's enough. But I must tell you there are an awful lot of folks for which that is not sufficient, at least it's not the beginning place for them. And so we need another line of evidence as well. And I'm telling you that the Scripture makes this very kind of argument in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. So let's turn to that passage for a moment. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, for his divine nature, so that they are without excuse. This passage in Romans 1.20 makes the famous, and I believe always, the most important argument from the natural world. It's the argument from design. And in the scriptures, in Romans 1, it says, his invisible attributes, the things about God that are not visible, it cannot be observed, can be seen. They can be seen by the things that are made. And so as you examine things that are made, it leads you to conclude some things about the one who made it. That's the argument from design. And the reason I like to start with that in this particular setting is because there are sometimes folks who take a little offense that in most of the series I don't use the Bible. We're in a church building. We're here to have a, a service. So why aren't you using the Bible? Well, I'm saying to you this evening, the Bible itself makes the kind of argument that I'm going to be making in this series. Obviously, my making it is going to be much more extensive than Romans 1.20. But the principle is in Scripture. So for Bible believers, what I would say to you is, don't take offense when someone turns to God's other book and uses the testimony of design to argue for the existence of a designer. It's a perfectly scriptural way to go about it. And so what are the things you can learn? Romans 20 says you can learn of his eternal power and his divinity by examining the things that are made. I am utterly convinced that God has left a sufficient testimony independent of this book to convince anyone who's willing to observe carefully and draw the conclusions that there is a God and that this God designed marvelous things. In fact, I'm convinced that in this age, in the 21st century, we have less excuse than ever for missing that there is a God. Well, I must tell you, an awful lot of folks miss it. And I don't know how it is in your neck of the woods here in Tennessee, but the atheist association down in my neck of the woods are growing. They're increasing not only in number, but in influence. And they're becoming more vocal. We had a billboard set up right outside of the city of Lakeland, a huge billboard on the interstate, speaking openly against those who believe in God and the lack of necessity for believing in God. So that's happening among us, and certainly I suspect it's happening here too. But let me read you before we get into this discussion now. 
a classic illustration of that. This is Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Blind Watchmaker. Richard Dawkins, probably in our age, is one of the most outspoken, vociferous opponents of belief in God. He believes it's dangerous to believe in God. In this book, he's speaking out against the argument from design. And I'd like to share with you a little bit of what he says in the very first chapter to set the stage for why this subject needs to be discussed. The watchmaker of my title, the title is The Blind Watchmaker. The watchmaker of my title is borrowed from a famous treatise by the 18th century theologian, William Paley. Paley, in his book, Natural Theology, which was published in 1802, is the best-known exposition of the argument from design, always the most influential of the arguments for the existence of a god. It is a book I greatly admire, for in his own time its author succeeded in doing what I am struggling to do now. He had a point to make. He passionately believed in it. And he spared no effort to ram it home clearly. So if I may pause there just a moment in the quote, you hear what Richard Dawkins said. He says, I'm trying to do the same thing. I have a point to make. I passionately believe it, and I will spare no effort to ram it home. So, folks, that's my excuse if I do a little ramming at home tonight. Because there's plenty of that done by the evolutionists who believe the notion of God is ridiculous. He had a proper reverence for the complexity of the living world, and he saw that it demands a very special kind of explanation. The only thing he got wrong, admittedly quite a big thing, was the explanation itself. He gave the traditional religious answer to the riddle. But he articulated more clearly and convincingly than anybody had before. The true explanation is utterly different. And it had to wait for one of the most revolutionary thinkers of all time, Charles Darwin. And so he expressed his reverence for Charles Darwin. Paley's argument is made with passionate sincerity and is informed by the best biological scholarship of his day, but it is wrong, gloriously and utterly wrong. Now, maybe you've heard Paley's argument. The essence of it was this. If you were walking out in the heath in England and you came across a rock and you lifted it up and you asked yourself, well, how did that rock get there? You might as well say, well, it's been there for a long time and it's weathered. But if you were walking across the same heath and you found a watch and you lifted it up and looked at it and examined all its intricate parts, it is highly unlikely that you would say, isn't it interesting how that watch just came to be out here? Rather, you would probably begin looking for a watchmaker because the intricacies of the watch lead you to believe that there was someone that designed this thing. And then Paley goes on to say, the eye and other parts of the human body and many other things we find in nature are much more complex than a watch. And they too testify to a maker. Dawkins says he's utterly wrong about that. 
The analogy, he says, between the telescope and the eye, between the watch and a living organism is false. All appearances to the contrary, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and springs and plans the interconnections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparent purposeful form of all life has no purpose. It has no mind. It has no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of a watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. And so for the next 350 pages, Dawkins tries to ram home that natural selection, acting upon natural variation, can explain all the things that look like they're designed. And they're really not. Because the blind forces of fixed physics act upon by natural selection can make all of those things that look like they're designed. It's the blind watchmaker, after all. So says Richard Dawkins and a host of others. And thus he would argue that the argument from design is not an argument to convince anyone. I would argue to the contrary. And in this series of lectures, one of my goals is to present to you the evidence. Look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, natural selection, and look at it from a design standpoint, and let you answer the question. That's the approach we'll take. There are only two basic inferences, really, with regard to origins life and its diversity in particular. And I'm going to limit myself in this discussion to the origin of life and the origin of the diversity of life. That's a big enough topic. The origin of the universe is a little bit beyond my pale. And by the way, it seems to me it's a little far, more far-fetched in terms of what we can really learn about it. There are only two basic notions of how life came about when you boil it all down. I, don't, I do not believe there are more than that. Either life came about by natural causes, the evolutionary view, and the core idea is that life in all its forms emerged from simple substances by natural means. That's the basic concept. Or life originated by design. And the idea behind that is that life in all its forms is the result of the intelligent, Shaping of matter. Something had to act upon matter to produce life. I don't believe there are any other answers, ladies and gentlemen. If you can come up with some other one, I'd be glad to hear it. Now, I understand some folks try to combine these and use them both. But every solution to origins boils down to one of these two. And I would argue that both inferences are ultimately positions of faith. Listen, I've had lots of discussions with evolutionists. 
and they do not like the word faith. I remember one discussion at the University of Maine. We had about 200 people there, and I think there were 10 of us who believed in God. And the rest of them were evolutionists, and we had lots of good interaction. But there was one particular professor there named Dr. Cornfield, which I thought was a good name for a biology teacher. (laughs) And he and I had a lot of good back and forth. And he would not admit there was any element of faith in what he believed. You hear what I said? He would not admit there was any element of faith in what he believed. And so we went back and forth on that quite a bit. Folks, the reason both positions are positions of faith are for a number of reasons. Origins are not amenable to the normal repeatable experimentation or direct observation used in science. Nobody was there to do it. That's one of the reasons it's not amenable. We must use present circumstances and draw inferences about the remote past. Now, can you use science to do that? I absolutely believe you can. But when you boil it down to the bottom line, you're going to believe one way or the other based on your interpretation of the evidence. Neither inferences with regard to origins lends itself directly to testing its falsifiability. You see, one of the evidences that it's scientific is that you can falsify a theory. Neither one of these theories on origins can ultimately be falsified, not by normal scientific technique. The theory of abiogenesis, or chemical evolution, which is the origin of life itself, before there was any life, how did you get it? From non-life to produce life. That's abiogenesis. That's the beginning of life without any intelligent design. I'm saying that's also a position of faith. It can't be falsified. If a single-cell organism evolved from non-living matter, there must have been millions of small-scale changes. If those small-scale changes added up to form complex systems in a single cell, it must have taken billions of years. And scientists do not have enough time to test this supposed process. They can only try to model it. So ultimately, you can't falsify that position. The general theory of evolution, which says, now you've got first life, now how do we get all the different types of life forms? That's what Darwin worked on. Darwin said, once you get the first simple life forms, then natural selection takes over and natural variation that you can produce. All life forms, independent of any designer. If a single-cell organism or groups of them involved in a great variety of life forms on Earth, it must have required millions of small-scale changes. That's what Darwin said. There must have been millions upon millions upon millions of intermediates. If that's so, it must have required millions and millions and millions of years. Nobody believes those things happen that quickly. Which also means there's not enough time to determine that it happened. And so you can only examine small-scale changes over limited time, and then you have to extrapolate and say that it produced enough change to produce all living things. That's not observable, folks. Well, the theory of intelligent design is a position of faith also. 
because scientists cannot go back and reproduce the original creation or anything close to it. They can only look for signs of intelligent design in present events, objects or circumstances, just as is done regularly in various scientific disciplines. And from that, draw conclusions that there was intelligent design. That's Romans 1.20, isn't it? Examine the things that are made. So, because these subjects are definitely all positions of faith, this particular topic often generates more heat than it does light. I give you a classic example. The recent controversy over the adoption of new standards for science in the state of Florida, my home state, brought about some pretty interesting conversations in the newspapers. Here's a quote. I want you to note who it's from. This is from the 1996 Nobel Prize winner of chemistry, Dr. Harold Croteau of Florida State University, one of my alma maters. It was in the Tampa Tribune, February 18, 2008, in the midst of this controversy over science standards. Most of the controversy surrounded what you're going to do with evolution in the science textbook. Well, here's what Dr. Croteau said in this article arguing against those who were trying to say, well, we need to be careful how we say these things about evolution. It is disgracefully unethical for individuals who rail against the teaching of evolution as a proven fact, and may I interrupt here, and I do so rail. Evolution if you mean by that the general theory of evolution is not a fact, ladies and gentlemen. It is a possible explanation for facts and not very well substantiated. So yes, I rail against those who want to say the general theory of evolution is a fact. No, it is not. But here's what he thinks about me and a lot of other folks. Let me start over. It's disgracefully unethical for individuals who rail against the teaching of evolution as a proven fact to accept, either for themselves or their families, the humanitarian benefits accruing from medical scientific research underpinned by the theory. So I ought to be ashamed of myself for accepting medical treatments for myself and my children because I dare to question the general theory of evolution. But he goes on. Evolution is the backbone of biology, in particular molecular biology, and such people should be asked to forego all medical treatments, including almost all drugs, that could not have been developed if previous generations of young biology and medical students had not been taught evolutionary concepts to aid the development of medical advances. Dr. Crota ought to be ashamed of himself. That's pitiful. May I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that most of the medical advances, I would say all of the medical advances in terms of medicines could have been developed without ever thinking about the general theory of evolution. It did not underpin those advances. I would argue that in some instances it's interfered with them because it's wrong-headed. But... This subject generates more heat than light sometimes. Now, to be fair, 
Have I heard folks who believe in God make ridiculous statements also? I most certainly have. And say things that are just completely unsupportable, and by the way, ugly also. I would beg of you to refrain from such discussion and be fair and open and honest and kind as we deal with one another. So we need honesty if we're going to deal with this subject. And the reason for that, particularly in this subject, is that we all have such strong presuppositions when we come into it. So I like to tell you at the beginning of this series to be open with you about myself. I was raised by parents who were strongly convicted that there is a God. I was taught that this book is the Word of God from the time I was a baby. I'm thankful I was. But I recognize with that background, I come at this subject with presuppositions. I will confess to you, I want to believe God. And I did want to believe God as I was coming along through my uh, earlier years of life. But I must also tell you I was deeply challenged about that by the evolutionary theory and those who were teaching me. So deeply challenged that I truly believed if I dug too deeply into science, I would lose my faith. And it was questioned for me, which is part of the reason I like to talk about this. And I want to say to the young people in this audience, don't you be afraid of science. You dig in as deeply as you want. I've been doing it for 50 years. And the deeper I have dug into the scientific realm, the stronger my faith in God has become. And so can it for you. That doesn't mean everybody that goes that direction is going to have that experience. But I do firmly believe God has a grand testimony in science and in the natural world, which science is to study. But recognize that we all have presuppositions. We come at this with our own set of biases. But if you're here tonight, or if you're listening to this lecture and you're not a believer in God, would you be honest enough with yourself too to say you also enter this subject with your set of presuppositions? You also have a background and it tends to cloud your view. So let's be honest about that. Sometimes we tend to see what we expect or what we want. So here's a little experiment that was done by some psychologists that I'll explain to you just a little bit. And the whole purpose of this experiment was to see if people really observed carefully or if they observed what they expected. And so, here's the man sitting behind a desk. He brings you into the room, sits you down in a chair right in front of him, and he starts flashing cards at you, playing cards. And your job is to tell him what the playing card is, real fast, no hesitation. And so he flashes the cards, and you say, Ace of Spades, Ten of Hearts, etc., 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 And every now and then in that deck of cards, there'd be a card thrown in that was something wrong with it. But folks never noticed it when they were going quickly. You see anything wrong with those cards? All four of those are wrong. 
I just picked the wrong card. But in this deck of cards, most of them were right. But every now and then, one would pop up that there was something wrong with it. So like, what's wrong with the first one? Well, it's the ace of what? Spades, and it's supposed to be black. Right? Well, people didn't even notice that. They just called it the ace of spades. And when the queen of hearts popped up, and it was black, they didn't notice it was black. It was just the queen of hearts, etc. So what the experimenters did then, as they would do this, they would slow it down and let people have a little longer time to look at it. And somebody, one of them would start saying, well, wait a minute, let me see that one again. And when they slowed it down enough, most people saw that one of them or more was, there's something wrong with it. You know, some people never saw it. And the reason for that, as they concluded, is that we tend to see, I made them right now, didn't I? We tend to see what we expect. That's what this experiment was about. You think that ever happens in science? Listen, folks, it's much more likely to happen in that realm when you're doing experiments and you have a viewpoint, you have a world view that guides your thinking. You're much more likely to see things that fit with your worldview than things that don't. And to emphasize the things that fit more than the things that don't. And it's a very emotional topic. I taught chemistry for about 20 years. I never had a single parent come in and get all upset with me for teaching the atomic theory that all uh, materials are made of little tiny atoms with little nuclei in them, with neutrons and protons. Nobody ever got upset with me about that. But biology teachers have regular visits by parents upset if they teach the evolutionary theory, or if somebody dares in some kind of a public setting to dare to teach there's an intelligent designer, you talk about upset. This is an emotional topic. And why is that? Because, folks, the question of where you came from and how you got here has way more implications than biology can ever deal with. It has to deal with why we're here and what our purpose is. And what are we doing here? Where should we be going? Lots of questions like that. So when that adds to this whole dimension, it makes everything much more complex. So we've got to be realizing that as we look at this. We will be looking only at the evidence of the natural world in this series. That's all science can deal with. But it can be used, I'm convinced, to judge the relative merits of these two views. I don't know how you feel about that, but I firmly believe science can be used to examine which one of these is more reasonable. Kind of like a, a court case where you look at the evidence of the natural world, and there are really only two, two explanations. It either came about by natural causes, or there was an intelligent designer involved. I don't think there are any other answers. And you're going to have to ask yourself which is more reasonable based on the evidence, the facts of nature. So let me illustrate that with you. You all saw the O.J. Simpson case. You kids didn't. You weren't even born. 
But uh, you remember, don't you, from the O.J. Simpson case, probably the most famous piece of evidence was the glove with blood on it. And the question was, did that blood and that glove belong to O.J. Simpson? Well, there are tests to be made about that. And, uh, you know, you can go about using the evidence. You can run chemical tests, test the makeup of the blood. You can test all kinds of things about it chemically. And then you've got to decide, as a jury, is he guilty or is he not guilty, based on the evidence. But, folks, the evidence are the facts of nature, the things that are observable by some means. And then the interpretation is, what does it mean? Same thing is true here. There is a little difference here, though. I think in the sciences, it's much more like a civil case than it is a criminal case. You all know, don't you, that in a criminal case, you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, you just have to prove that the preponderance of the evidence favors your position. And that's what it's going to be like in the case of science examining origin. It's going to be the preponderance of the evidence. And by the way, did you know O.J. Simpson? Of course, you know he won the case, the criminal case. Did you know there was a civil case and he was convicted? So... This evidence we're going to be looking at and the judgments we're going to be making, we're going to look for the preponderance of the evidence. To me, it's overwhelming. To some folks, it isn't. Well, the same Dr. Cornfield said, now listen, Dr. Payne, if you bring in intelligent design into this discussion, you've just left the field of science. I want you to mull that over just a little bit. The way he actually said it in that discussion was, if you bring intelligence into science, you've just left the field of science. And then he corrected himself. Wait a minute. <laughs> that wasn't a really good thing to say. But the idea of an intelligent designer, you see, here's his argument. Science cannot investigate God. And he's right. But can science be used to infer the existence of a designer? I absolutely believe it can. And do you know, by the way, that lots of fields of science do exactly that all the time? Many fields in science require inferences of intelligent design regularly. I'll give you some examples. Anthropology, archaeology. You find this rock and you ask yourself, how'd that rock get there? In what shape it's in? Was that rock acted on by intelligence or did natural forces make that rock in the shape it's in? Isn't that an inference to intelligent design? Well, of course it is. I'll give you an example in a minute. Cryptography, criminal forensics, astrobiologists are always looking for the signs of intelligence. I say, why can't we do that in the field of biology also? I think we can so here's an example. Are you a cloud walker? Not particularly. Well, take a good look at that cloud. 
I see something in that cloud. Looks like a face to me. Let me help you see it if you don't see it. I call that an eyeball. Here's another eye. These are two eyes. There's a nose. There's a little mouth. And this is a big old white beard. That looks like Santa Claus to me. I've had others tell me they see a bunny rabbit. You see a bunny rabbit in that cloud? I'll show them to you. Let me get rid of that eye. There's his ears. There's his eye. Here's his little nose. Here's his feet. And there's his little um, tail. Look at this thing right here. There's a little bunny rabbit right there. My point about that is, if you watch clouds very much, you're going to see some interesting formations up there in the clouds. My question to you would be, is it necessary to posit? Now, isn't it interesting what an intelligent designer did with that cloud? Well, I don't think so. I think we would normally think the wind and the water vapor as it formed up there formed itself into those formations. That's not, it's not necessary to say something specifically designed that to explain that phenomenon. I think that's a natural occurrence. But, ladies and gentlemen, what if you saw this in the clouds? <laughs> Whatever your political view is, forget it. What if you saw that in the clouds? Would anybody say, isn't it interesting what the wind and the water vapor produced up there? Nobody would say that because we have zero evidence that natural forces acting alone could spell out elect Barack Obama. My wife and I were walking into Disney World the other day in Orlando and up in the sky it just appeared. Jesus saves! Written across the sky. Well, I got my binoculars out. And there was an airplane up there doing sky riding, folks. And do you think anybody would have believed that if it said, Jesus saves in the clouds, that nature did that by itself? Nobody would believe that. Why is that? Because there is no evidence that natural phenomenon can produce something as complex as a language in a cloud. That requires intelligent design. Well, you say, that's a stupid argument. Well, maybe it is, but the principle is the same. So let's use a little more scientific one. What if you found a chunk of rock like that one right there, or this one? Which, by the way, are actual finds. I took this out of an, art, an anthropology book. What would you conclude about those rocks? Well, probably not much, because you know what you're doing. But I can tell you, archaeologists spend tedious hours, days, months, and years studying one rock. It's the most boring stuff. There are books that thick written on how to determine something stuff about rocks. If you ever have trouble going to sleep, get you one of those books. You'll last about two pages before you conk out 
But folks, there are a lot of scientific techniques you can use to examine the striations on that rock, the chemical makeup of it. And I can tell you that anthropologists and archaeologists can conclude with reasonable certainty, having run experiments on it, and looked at its features, chemical and physical experiments, when they get finished running all those experiments, there's enough data out there and in inferences that have been drawn, they can be about 99% certain that that rock was designed by something like that. In fact, that's precisely what's been concluded about that rock. They say it's a scraper, and it had to be acted on by some kind of intelligence to get in the shape it's in. Nature would never produce that by itself without intelligence acting upon it. You see what I'm saying? Is that good science? I think it is. I think you can look for signs of intelligence. Now, Dr. Cornfield didn't like this. Like he didn't like most of what I said. So he made this observation. An archaeologist who draws this conclusion is talking about human intelligence, and that's still part of nature. And so it's still nature doing it, because it was human intelligence. Some folks are not going to see. And I, my answer to him was this. Well, Dr. Cornfield, you're begging the question here, sir, because human intelligence is one of the very things we're talking about. Where did that come from? Did nature produce human intelligence, which can then turn around and do something like that? That's the whole issue. So don't tell me human intelligence is part of nature. The question is, could nature produce that? And secondly, if you don't like that illustration, how about this one? I was in Harvard University in the spring of 1968. And my professor in astronomy was one of the foremost radio astronomers of that time. And he was involved in a very famous project which your tax money was paying for. And it was a scientific project. The object was to determine if there's any intelligent life out there in the universe. And he was heavily involved in that. And he came in one morning to our astronomy class and he put this on the board. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, last night, I was up all night, and the radio telescope we were using, which we've had beamed at a particular point in space, and he told us precisely where it was, received those signals on our radio telescope. He described for us the amplitude, the wavelength, the frequency, and all the physical features of that radio wave. And he said, we have drawn a tentative conclusion that it is possible that for the first time in human history, some intelligence has tried to communicate with us. Now, why in the world would someone draw such a conclusion? I'll tell you why. Because to that point in time, astronomers had never received such a signal before. And they thought that there wasn't anything in the natural world that produced such signals. And therefore, they concluded possibly 
There was an intelligent source. Well, much to his dissatisfaction, within the next few months, they discovered a bunch more of these from different places in space. So much so that now the conclusion is, this is a natural phenomenon. It happens too often. And by the way, if they'd thought about it very carefully, this is much too regular. Nature can do very regular things. And does it all the time. Have you ever taken a little piece of salt and dropped it down in a super-saturated super salt solution and watch it grow a crystal all by itself? And if you examine that crystal under a microscope, it'll be a perfect cube. Perfect. And it grew all by itself. Nature does lots of things that are beautiful, that are orderly. This was too regular. This even has a name now. They searched for extraterrestrial intelligence, and they came to name this particular phenomenon pulsars. You ever heard of them? we got TVs named after them. Pulsars. Now we believe that those are pulsing stars that pulse out these regular signals, and nature did that. didn't require intelligent design. But are we still looking? Folks, the CT program, which was sponsored by the federal government for 25 years, and your tax money paid for it, is no longer being paid for by your tax money. You're welcome because it produced no results. But are they still looking? Oh, yes. There's a very healthy CT organization still looking, sponsored by private donations, and they have their own website. There it is. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pull out a statement from that website for you. Remember, this is an introductory lesson to lay the foundation. There's a quote in that first paragraph that looks like this. CETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is an exploratory science that seeks evidence of life in the universe by looking for some signature of its technology. They're searching outer space for some signature of the technology of some intelligent life out there. How do you do that? Well, here's what they say. Virtually all radio CT experiments have looked for what are now called narrow band signals. These are radio emissions that are at one spot on the radio dial. Did you listen to your radio coming tonight? I did. And you turn that dial and it comes to 91.1 and you receive signals. Well, that's what they're looking for out there, is narrowband signals that are radio signals. And they say that narrowband signals are the mark of a purposely built transmitter. Why is that? Because natural cosmic noisemakers such as pulsars, quasars, do not make radio signals that are this narrow. So, folks, CT experimenters are using science to detect evidence for intelligence. And my question to Dr. Cornfield was, what kind of intelligence would that be? Is it human? 
The fact is we don't have a clue about it, except for the evidence of radio signals. But these folks truly believe that they can infer intelligent cause without identifying what the intelligence is by the evidence of the signature. I hope you're getting this point. This is the most important lecture of the whole week because it lays the foundation for the argumentation of argument from design. And it's used all the time by scientists. Don't you let anybody tell you that you step out of science when you bring in the argument for intelligent design. It's used all the time. As I have shown you already. In particular, it's used in CITES experimentation. And the interesting thing about this one is that we have no clue what that intelligence is, if there is some intelligence out there. And by the way, have they found anything yet? Zilch! I'll tell you what we are finding. The more we learn about space is the more we learn, the more unique this place becomes. That's what we're learning. We may be the only place in the whole universe, folks, where life exists. But Carl Sagan wrote a book called Contact in which he played off of this whole deal of searching. You see all those radio telescopes there? May I please emphasize this book is fiction. But in this fictional book, he claims that these people who were searching space for signs of intelligence found one. There it is. That's what they found in this particular book. That signal. So you get it? Probably a little too small for you to see, so let's blow it up a little bit. There it is. That's the signal they received in this book called Contact, which convinced them that this was not a normal phenomenon that nature produced. So let me try to help you see the pattern here. First of all, you should recognize that it's a series of ones and zeros. You see that? The ones corresponding to bleeps on the radio telescope and the zeros corresponding to spaces where there was nothing. So you see, it had bleep, bleep, space. Bleep, bleep, bleep. In fact, let me just underline those. Two bleeps and a space. Three bleeps and a space. Five bleeps in a space, seven bleeps in a space. Can you count that? Two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven. Eleven bleeps in a space. And then thirteen bleeps in a space. You got it? What do you think it is? <laughs> well, let me give you the next one. It's seventeen bleeps in a space. And the next one's 19. These are the prime numbers, folks. You kids remember what prime is? That's a number that can be divided only by itself and one. So like the number three, what can you divide into three? One and three. And that's all. Well, that's enough math. <laughs> 
In this signal, ladies and gentlemen, is found the first 28 prime numbers in a row. All the way up to the number 101, which is the last one down here. That whole bunch. So in this signal, you start with the number 2, and you go all the way to the number 101, and in order, you have the first 28 prime numbers in a row. And in this book, Context, the scientist said, there's no way a bleeping star did that. Or anything else you can figure out. And thus they came to conclude this was a signal from an intelligent source. Now, did it really happen? No, 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 no. But if it did, see, my question to you is, what would convince you that there's intelligent life out there? If you truly received a signal like this on a radio telescope with the first 28 prime numbers in the row, would that convince you? With me. Now, here's a little interesting thing I want to do. You have to, have to do a little more math with me tonight. This is really more logic. This little book called The Design Inference by William Dembski. William Dembski is a mathematician and a philosopher. He has two Ph.D. degrees, extremely well uh, learned. He argues in this book that you can infer that something was designed in nature by following this funnel. This book describes the funnel in great detail. I'm going to describe it to you briefly tonight using this phenomenon and show you why it's reasonable to conclude that that phenomenon is designed, whereas the cloud thing is not. Here we go. The first question you ask yourself is, is it contingent? If it's not, then it was a necessity. It was going to happen. If it is contingent, then you drop down and ask the next question. That's the first question. Let's see if we can apply that to this thing. To establish contingency of this sequence, we must first establish it's compatible with the laws involved in its production. Well, this sequence of ones and zeros corresponds to beats and pauses of radio signals. So it corresponds to natural law. It's just beep, space, beep. Those things happen. Therefore, this sequence of ones and zeros is compatible with the laws governing radio emissions. First question. And that the regularities or laws permit any number of alternatives. Do you think that these ones and zeros have to be in that order? Well, of course not. There's an infinite number of ways that could have bleached out there. Clearly, the laws of radio emissions allow a huge number of alternatives to this sequence, which means then this is not the necessary result of natural laws. It's contingent. It didn't have to happen that way. It follows the laws of nature, but it could have happened in lots of different ways. So we conclude this is contingent. That's the first question. Dembski does it much more mathematically. Second question, is it complex? If it's not complex enough, then chance could have produced it, even if it was contingent. Let me illustrate that. Suppose in this particular sequence, this is all you got. Bleep, bleep, space, 
bleep, 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 space, bleep, 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 bleep. The first three numbers. Suppose that's all you got, just those 12 bits. Folks, chance could have done that. It's not complex enough. Something that small and simple could have just happened by random happenings. It's not complex enough. But what about this? 1,126 bits containing the first 25 prime numbers in a row. Folks, the probability of that happening by chance is so minuscule, it's essentially zero. That's the point. That's complex. This sequence is sufficiently complex that it's unreasonable to attribute it to chance. So the answer to that second question is yes. But there's still one more question you need to ask to really draw this down to a nub and say there in no way this was not designed. And here's the third question. Is it specified? Specified. And this is where most folks that I discuss this subject with have not come to understand what this is about. Is it specified? And let me explain that to you. In this sequence, we need to show that the pattern in the sequence is independent of the event. Can we do that? In other words, side information enables us to construct the pattern in the sequence without even referring to this event. Could we reproduce these uh, first 20, uh, 28 time numbers without ever knowing about that event? Well, of course we could, just by knowing math. You see, in these numbers here that are found in this signal, the pattern of prime numbers of this signal can be generated simply by knowing the definition of prime numbers. You don't have to have that radio signal to come up with those 28 numbers. So there is a specified sequence here you can produce without that signal. And therefore, it is specified. Thus, it didn't happen by chance. So, yes, 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 this was designed. That's his argument in this book. And by the way, Carl Sagan in his book uses the same basic argument. This signal was designed because it was contingent, it was complex, and it was specified in advance. You know what? Carl Sagan wrote a book on intelligent life in the universe, and one of the things he put out in his book was if we ever discovered a signal that had the first... X number of prime numbers in a row, we'd know that came from a design source. He said it ahead of time. He said lots of other things in that book. If we found this ahead of time, it would have to have been designed. Well, the fact is we haven't found such a signal from outer space. Then let me ask you this question. What if we received a message from outer space that had a language in it that we could decode and read? Let me give you an example. You get this signal and you figure out the code and you read it and it says, Help! I'm out here! Come find me! You receive such a signal. I don't believe there was anybody on earth, if you truly received that signal, that would believe that came from anywhere but an intelligence source. 
and we'd start looking, wouldn't we? That'd be on every headline of every newspaper in the world. Now, here's what I'm here to tell you about tonight. Tomorrow night and the next night, I want to tell you about some signals that are all over the place. They don't come from outer space. They're right here under your nose. In fact, they're in your nose. <laughs> and lots of other places. <laughs> there are all kinds of signals that indicate a signature of design that I'd like to talk to you about. You see, the issue is not scientific fact versus religious faith. The issue is which position of faith is more reasonable based on interpretation of the evidence. The issue is not the evidence obtained from science. This Dr. Cornfield, I have to bring him up again. He said, Dr. Payne, all you creationists ever do is criticize our evidence. Why don't you bring your own evidence? Where's your evidence? You know the answer to that? The bloody glove belongs to both of us. Isn't that right? The prosecutor and the defense attorney use the same evidence. Evidence isn't any different. What's different is how you interpret it and which interpretation is most reasonable. We all use the same evidence, folks. It's not your evidence and my evidence. It's the evidence. So the issue is not the evidence obtained from science. The evidence is which interpretation of the data is more reasonable. And I think I could win a court case if the only alternative is excluded. And that's exactly what's happened in school. Intelligent design is not allowed because it's considered religion. Evolution is allowed because it's considered science. And may I suggest to you, if properly done, both of them are positions of faith and can both be dealt with scientifically. But if you exclude the only other possibility, it's easy to win an argument. And that's exactly where we are in public school. So a little summary. We all approach the subject of origins with personal biases. It's an emotional subject because it has implications far beyond what science can answer. Science permits any cause, natural or intelligent, if it's supported by uniform sensory experience. If the data supports it, it's allowed. You haven't stepped out of science by saying it was designed by an intelligence. The methods of science and the evidence of the natural world can be used to judge the relative merits of the two views on origins, natural causes and intelligent design, and any position on origins is ultimately a position of faith, no matter what it is. Let's admit that and deal with it. 